welcome everybody. I'm, I'm really excited also, Scott was talking about these groups, and I'm excited my group gets started again this week as well, and I know as many of you who are in existing groups, groups are beginning, and so for been kind of a, a long break, and so I'm um, looking forward to reconnecting with people and just seeing what's going on in life and sharing together, praying together, doing life together. And so um, you saw all these videos and heard different testimonies and stuff. It really, really uh, matters um, to, to plug in, to get to get involved. And I, I realize that that is like um, a new experience for many. And so I just encourage you to take a dip in the pool, just to test drive a group in a sense and, and try it out. There won't be any pressure. You're not going to have to, uh, you know, they're not going to lock and deadbolt the doors and not let you leave. So we just really would encourage you to, to explore one of our small groups here. Uh, today we're, we're wrapping up this series called Catalysts. We've been looking at different ways that God grows us. Catalysts introduce change or they speed up change and growth. And so whenever we set out to do anything important in life, we face challenges. We face adversity. Uh, everything in life. Things like trying to have a good marriage. Things like pursuing a friendship or relationship. Raising kids. And there's going to be challenges. Any, anything that involves you and other people, count on some sparks flying. You know, Count on some challenges. Going to work every day. You know, If you didn't have to interact with anybody, that would be a little easier. But the fact that you got to work with people... And then you have deadlines and you have quotas. I mean, there's just there's challenges. There's adversity that we face. Managing money. I mean, if we had an endless supply of it, maybe we think, oh, I have no trouble. But even those who do, they find <laughs> things to, to get into trouble. They find ways to get into trouble. But it just all of life, anytime we set out to do anything important in life, we face challenges and trouble. And it's, it's really something that we should expect, not be surprised at, although... Um, even though I know this about life and you know this about life, um, I'm surprised when it hits. I'm surprised that I'm in trouble. I'm surprised that I'm being challenged by something. I'm, I'm surprised that my goal has been blocked. I don't know why um, because it's, it's a part of life. We come to almost expect it, but then every time it shows up, we're just not sure how to respond. And so, uh, But my attitude, what I found, has a major impact on the outcomes that I experience in the midst of challenges. My attitude. My choices, my, my outlook. Uh, take a look at this quote from a pastor. This is from a pastor named Chuck Swindoll. He used to pastor in, in Southern California, and now he's in Texas. He says this, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitudes on life, or attitude on life. Attitude, to me, is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance giftedness or skill, again, attitude. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. He says, we cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have. And he says, that is our attitude. He says, I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. That's a great quote right there. Life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how do I react to it. 
And then he says this, and so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. And it's so convicting because it's so true. You know, all this stuff's flying out. We're in charge of how we respond. Looking back, I can see how God has arranged providentially. He's arranged the circumstances in my life to challenge growth in me. Uh, maybe for you, it was, it was one of the things I already mentioned, you know, relationship, dating, work. Or maybe it's starting a, a new school or starting at a new school or beginning a new career, transitioning and shifting gears in your vocation. And, and just there's some challenges that you're growing through. Or maybe it's dating or, or possibly a breakup. You know, breakups, they, they can certainly spur growth in our life. Or a promotion. How am I going to handle this new responsibility, the pressure that I'm now under? Inevitably, God uses all of these times in life to really create growth in us. So what we're doing is we're wrapping up this series today by looking at this fifth catalyst called Pivotal Circumstances. And so if you want, I encourage you to pull this listening guide out. Many of the circumstances that God uses in our life are not so great. Some of the ones I mentioned are, are good circumstances typically. But some of the ones that God uses to really shape and challenge us to grow are not the great ones. They're, they're not highlights. In fact, they're painful circumstances. They're painful things that we've walked through. Or maybe right now we're in the midst of. Uh, it, this is where the struggle lies. Painful circumstances. What are we going to do when trouble strikes? Uh, in, in basketball, to use an illustration here, in basketball there's something called a pivot. And um, as I've been thinking about this, I've been kind of working this out in my mind, and I only played one year of basketball, played sixth grade basketball, and our elementary, see, they don't have that anymore, but I came from a small town, and uh, they had, uh, each elementary school had a sixth grade basketball team, maybe they do have that now, I don't know, but it was like a big deal, and there was a big tournament, and so we'd play all the different schools in our area, and, and <clears throat> so I learned something called the pivot, the pivot, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, I want to show you a quick video because I'm, I probably can't demonstrate it all that well, but, but I do want to show you a quick video about um, what is a pivot, how does that work, and then connect that idea to pivotal circumstances. Oftentimes in, wi- in life, we start pursuing a goal. We, we advance down the court of life, in a sense, and we're heading towards a goal, and someone blocks our goal or something blocks our goal. Something gets in the way of us, you know, achieving that goal. And oftentimes that is trouble. Trouble steps in front of us. And so let's take a a look at this video and watch how in basketball you pivot. Pivoting is one of the most basic skills in the game of basketball. And it's essential for dribbling, scoring, and passing effectively. This iSport lesson will show you how to correctly pivot in basketball. Basketball players must always be ready to explode off the balls of their feet. But in order to play with quickness and keep the defender on his heels, you need to have the proper footwork. This is especially true when it comes to pivoting. The pivot itself is just moving around while leaving one foot in contact with the ground at all times, because the rules dictate that you're allowed to move only one foot when stationary with the ball. The foot that stays planted on the floor is referred to as the pivot foot. All right. I will demonstrate so you guys can see. I don't know if we have the ability to do this, but so in life, we move down, you know, 
or we just pursue a certain goal, whether that is I'm pursuing this relationship, I'm trying to be a good parent, I'm trying to graduate, I'm trying to keep this job, I'm trying to get a promotion, um, trying to meet people, want to share my faith with them, I'm trying to grow. We start doing these different things in life. They're good things in life. They have value. And all of a sudden, something blocks us. And so I'm going this direction. Let's see if I can do this. Okay. And some, uh-oh, I, I stopped on the wrong foot because I usually would do that on this foot. But so my my defender here is, is, is blocking me. I can choose at this point to just give up. I don't know if you've done this, but in basketball, you can be like, sometimes what I see is people in basketball, a defender will come up and really smother them. And if you're new to the game, which I would claim to be new to the game, um, you know, you get anxious. You're just, you know, almost a person can force a turnover by just getting up in your face. And, you know, you don't know what to do. So you almost put your, you know, this, and then they just swat the ball away from you and you lose the opportunity to even advance. Um, you stop pursuing the goal. And if you do that enough times, you're running down the court and, and you keep meeting opposition. You could just be like, I'm not getting anywhere. I don't even get inside the, you know, inside the key or I don't even get close enough for me. You know, I got to get pretty close. And so um, I'm not getting close enough. And so, dang it, <sighs> just, uh, you know, and try again. And I keep trying to pursue. If all I ever do is hit opposition and, and I just quit, then that's, you know, I'm not ever going to advance. I'm not ever going to form a relationship, pursue, you know, a healthy relationship. I'm not going to be able to develop my parenting. I'm not going to be able to move towards my goals. Another thing is you just get frustrated in the same way and throw a tantrum. I've seen this in sports and in life. You know, you've got a guy. He wants to play really bad. But, again, he, he keeps getting blocked. And so he gets frustrated. And there's always that angry guy on the court that wants to, you know, start getting in a fight because he can't play basketball. He's just a strong guy, but he doesn't know how to play basketball, and so he gets frustrated, he throws a tantrum, or we could try to cheat. We're moving down the, the field of life, and we stop because trouble strikes, and we, we, we slide back and we start dribbling again, or we, we, we break the rules. We step out of bounds. You can't do that. He, you know, in the, in the rules with basketball, you've got to pivot. You leave one foot, and you kind of can spin on this one foot, and this is what you can do. You can pivot. You can plant yourself and stay committed to staying in bounds and waiting and looking for an option, okay? You're either looking for an open shot. Maybe you're, you're, you're trying to fake a pass this way, and then you turn and take a shot. Or maybe you fake this way, and, and over here you spin. You're still keeping your foot planted. You spin over here, and you see one of your um, teammates moving. And so you maybe, I don't know. I'm really struggling at this, you know. I, I'm not a, you know, played baseball, wrestling. That's tennis. This is a stretch. But but you're looking for some other option. At the same time, you're keeping your foot planted because as soon as you move your pivot foot, you turn the ball over. You no longer can pursue that goal. <clears throat> Whenever trouble comes up, this is really, I think, where the real growth occurs. What am I going to do in the midst of trouble? Am I going to step out of bounds? Am I going to cheat? Am I going to uh, throw a tantrum and quit? Am I going to freak out? I want to look at this in light of a passage in Scripture in James chapter 1. <clears throat> it's James chapter 1, in the very beginning, uh, trouble, what you find out, is a test of faith that can have tremendous value in life. So the fact that there's someone opposing my ability to advance is actually, what James is saying, it's a test that, that can have tremendous value. It's a test on our faith. James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. 
he writes this letter. He leads the church in Jerusalem at this point. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem up until his death. He died as a martyr. He, he was killed for his faith. But after he introduces himself in his letter, he says, I'm James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. This is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning this is written to all the scattered tribes of Israel, people that had, had scattered. So he's writing this to the, to the church at large, and he says this, verse 2. He says, count it all joy. Be delighted, in a sense. Joy is, means delight, rejoice. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James, what he does, he lays out here a perspective that is uncommon today. This is not a common perspective. Most of us, we respond to dreadful circumstances with resistance. Whenever trouble strikes, we resist that trouble. We want to go around that trouble. But James, he gives us this surprising advice. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So it's like when you meet a trial, you know, he's, he's almost like saying, face it and be like, hey, nice to meet you. I'm happy you're here. I was expecting you. I knew you'd be here. I shouldn't be surprised. He says that in our trials, we should choose the attitude of total joy. Or he says, count it all joy. You might want to circle that. The idea here about all joy, you know the word joy, so I don't need to define that. But the idea here is that it's joy that is full. It's not mixed with anything else. It's joy that... It's not coupled with some complaint or despair. It's full, total, unmixed joy. Man, that's hard to that's hard to have. Whenever I go and get my coffee at any coffee shop, the baristas they always ask me, "What do you want room for cream?" And I say, "Yes, I do." Usually, I'm like, "Yeah, I'd, I'd like a little room for cream." And honestly, that's how I like my trials as well. I want my trials with a little room for complaint. <laughs> I like to leave a little room. For complaining, I like to leave a little room for pessimism. I'm, you know, if, if all of us had to pick a, t- a Winnie the Pooh character, you know, which, you know, I'm a dad. I got three kids. Been on the Winnie the Pooh ride more times than there are people in this room. And, and, and you know, I can identify with, you know, the, the little rabbit, and I can identify with that, that, that donkey, Eeyore, who's just constantly just like, you know, complaining about something, you know, here's my present. If you don't like it, you can take it back. You know, that's, that's what he says at the end of the ride at Disneyland. I choose oftentimes to leave a little bit of room in my cup for just a sad comment, a depressing comment. Um, James is saying, fill your, fill your cup with joy. He's saying, leave no room for any other attitude. I think this is a really important thing understand really how do you pull that off James when these tests come it's not natural for these responses to bring joy that joy would just overflow when trouble strikes when someone gets in my way when something blocks my goal when I'm in a fight with my wife when I'm frustrated with my kids when the bank account is running low when the car gets in an accident how do I keep you know filling up in joy and not move towards the resistance James says this he says you actually have to look beyond the circumstance at what is coming. You're not excited because they've come, but you're excited when you meet them because something else is being produced. Here's what he says in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces 
steadfastness. This is why rejoicing in trial is important because something more important is coming. Something of what he says of high value is coming through trials and tests. He says steadfastness is that thing. I'd encourage you to circle that word steadfastness in your listening guide. Um, This is not a word that we use very often, steadfastness. Do I even want that? It's not a word we use in English much. I'm producing steadfastness in my life. Do I, want, do I really want steadfastness? The Greek word for this, it, it can be translated to mean perseverance. It can also be translated to mean endurance. These are attitudes where we choose to stay under the pressure. The word literally means to remain or to wait under something. To remain or wait under something. And we've all been in positions or times in life where there's this pressure weighing down on us or trouble right in front of us, and we want to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. We don't like the fact that there's a defender in our face and he's trying to cause us to turn over the ball. And so we cave under that pressure and we turn the ball over or we we back off of advancing towards our goal. The truth is we face adversity and challenge to reach almost every worthy goal. Trouble strikes as we pursue almost every worthy goal. And that's something so important to remember. James then writes this in verse 4. He says, and let steadfastness, this steadfastness, again, that's the ability to remain or wait under pressure, to stay under pressure. Steadfastness, he says, must have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Maturity only comes through this path of steadfastness developing in us. In other words, on the flip side, on the other hand, wrong responses in life dull the effects of trouble. Whenever we choose the wrong thing when we're facing trouble, it dulls this process of steadfastness growing in us, of this attitude of being able to bear up under pressure. There, there are many wrong, wrong responses. Let me name just a couple. One wrong response is the why question. One response is when trouble strikes, we just start saying why. Why now? Why me? Why not them? Why not this circumstance? Why? And really, these questions oftentimes cannot be answered. Oftentimes, we end up wasting all sorts of time and energy asking the wrong questions, asking why questions. I shared a few weeks ago that my dad, we found out my dad has leukemia. And some of my initial thoughts as I was working through that was, why him? Seriously, why my dad? You've probably asked a similar question as you've faced maybe something similar to that. Um, Why a guy who served so faithfully? My dad's a pastor. Served for 35 years as a pastor, still a pastor. For the past six months, just to tell you a little bit about my dad's heart, you know, just for people, my dad's been organizing for the past six months a relay for life for cancer for the American Cancer Society. Didn't know he had cancer, but he's been organizing this relay for life in his city, and he was running, or he was organizing this to remember my grandmother, his mom, and who died of cancer, and, and for others in his city. And then a few weeks ago, he finds out he has cancer. It's just so strange, you know, and and I'm like, why him? Why not the criminal in his town? Why not all the criminals who are, you know, headed to, they're just going to be in prison? Why why not them, God? Why him? Like, and so we start asking these questions. Well, the wrong responses in trouble, they dull the effect of what God wants to produce. Also, another wrong response is just to resent trouble. 
or to resent the person who caused the trouble. Start getting bitter at people. Unforgiveness begins to develop towards others. And if over time we don't learn to forgive people when trouble strikes or we don't learn to forgive when problems crop up in relationships, what happens is we can easily become a wounded and disloyal person. We can't ever really form relationships. We just become wounded. But the promise in verse 4 is this. It's that God will make trouble worthwhile. God will produce something good, he says. Right in the middle of trouble, we can start rehearsing all the wrong thoughts. This is such a waste of time. This is such a waste of effort and money. We can latch on to the wrong responses and the wrong thoughts and start looking for our own solutions. But God really can make trouble good. So wait on him. Here's the full effect, he says. He says that you may be perfect and complete. Those words mean you're finished. Perfect means it's kind of a measurement of time in this language. In the Greek, it's you're finished, or it is finished. It has been made perfect. It's been perfected, or complete means whole. So there's something lacking in our lives, in a sense, that is not done yet. There's something not finished that God's trying to produce in us. There's something that's not quite full yet that God wants to make whole. He's trying to grow us up. He wants to mature all of us. The truth is this, is that God, this is in your outline, God grows our faith as we look to him right in the midst Right in the midst of pivotal circumstances. Right in the, right as you're facing the opposition, that's where God tends to grow our faith the most. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, it goes on, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's unpack this for, for a moment. Look at some of the responses that show up. Uh, here's our role under pressure. There's our role, and then there's God's role. Our role is first, according to these verses, we ask God for help. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Verse 5, the first part. Ask God for help. If you're like me, difficulty usually brings to the surface all the things that I don't know about life. <laughs> I'm frustrated because... I don't know how to move forward. You know, there's certain things I can fix, but then I get oftentimes into situations where I do not know what to do, and I've got to ask someone else because I have to admit, I don't have, I don't have the answers to all these questions. And so what we need in this moment is we need direction and wisdom from God himself on how do I move forward. If I'm stuck, God, where do I look? If I'm trying to advance, where do I look? I, I look here, there's, defend, there's someone defending me, I look here. But God, where should I look? So we ask God, God, what? What am I supposed to do? All the while, we're, we're keeping our foot planted there. We're staying under the pressure. We're not caving to the pressure. After you ask God, then you do this. Then you trust him. You trust that he's going to provide. This is according to the verse. Verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Whenever I ask in, in faith in troubling times, I'm acknowledging that God will not allow me to come to ruin. I'm I'm acknowledging that God can be trusted if I ask him. I'm acknowledging he's trustworthy. I express before God that he is the one that I'll place my confidence in, not my circumstances. The analogy he gives here in verse verse 6 is the analogy of a wave. A wave shows the person who does not put their confidence in God. The wave, their circumstances, determines their happiness. It says one day they're up. One day they're down. One day they're up. Now this is where most of us can naturally go, just emotionally, up and down, up and down. That's 
That's not a life of faith, though. Instead, he says, pray. Ask God and trust him to provide. Then the third thing is this. Choose to obey. We pray. We put our trust, and then we take that step of obedience that he puts before us. If he says, here's the open shot. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pass the ball. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get down on your kid's level and start start exercising patience. I want you to spend more time at home. I want you to um, start being more generous. Here, here's, here's the move I want you to take. Whatever the issue might be, I want you to start serving more. I want you to start pouring out your life for other people. Look at verse 7. It says, For the person, the one like the wave, that person, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The double-minded person, he wants assurances from God. And at the same time, he's self-assured that they can solve their own problems. This person, according to these verses, is unstable. They don't have any footing through adversity. Instead, God wants us to obey him in the midst of it. And to do this, it means we have to set our will and we have to set you know, our heart. <laughs> we have to set those things to really please God. And what that looks like is, again, I'm setting my foot. I'm deciding, God, I am not going to move from pleasing you. I'm going to stay planted in what you've told me to do. I'm going to wait on you. I'm not going to give in to the pressure. That's, that's our role. And then well, what God does is this. This is how God responds. As we turn him in trials, number one, he provides, gen- he provides generously, Scripture says. Verse 5b, if you go back and look at that, it says, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, meaning without insult, without reprimand, and it will be given him. He guides us just as a parent guides his children. God is not stingy. He's not going to be reprimanding us, he says. He wants us to come to him because he does not withhold himself as we choose to live a life of faith. He doesn't hold himself back. The wisdom God often gives when we're being blocked and we turn to him is not always a tangible gift from him, but it's insight into how to handle the situation. He gives us insight from his word, usually, on what to do next. He tells us, hey, this is the step you need to take. This is the way you need to pass. We want the whole way laid out. We want our whole future revealed to us. But he has given us what is needed to take the step that's before us, or to take the shot. Keep advancing. And as we take that next step, what he does is he develops more faith and confidence in our hearts towards him, and we continue to seek him. We keep asking him, we keep trusting, we keep obeying. He answers, he provides generously, and the relationship with him grows. And then the next trial strikes, trouble strikes, we ask, we trust, we obey. He provides generously, he can be counted on. Finally, here's what happens. He adds stability as we trust his guidance. We're stable. We're not like that wave who says, we're not double-minded. We're, we're people who have stability, we have confidence. Yet we know that trouble is going to strike. We know that something will block our goals in life. But we begin to develop a confidence in the relationship that we have with him. A lot can be learned by the description of the one who doubts. The one who doubts in the picture of that in these verses, that person, their life is chaotic. There's no clear direction on what to put their confidence in. But to the one who trusts God, there's a picture of stability. If if you are walking with God, then you've probably experienced this in your life. And some days you've turned the ball over. And some seasons you've turned the ball over. Sometimes you've stepped out of bounds. You've moved your foot and you've backed off the pressure. Other times you've stayed planted and, and you're pivoting and you're waiting. Okay, God, I'm looking. I'm looking 
I'm trusting you. I'm waiting to see what you want me to do next. Um, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Barry, Barry Palmer. And Barry's going to come up here and, and share just briefly with, with all of us. He's going to share uh, a little bit about how he's experienced trouble in life. And you have either one of those. This is Barry. And Barry was a part of the team that helped us to, to plant this church. He moved out here with us. There were seven of us adults that planted OCC, and um, he came on this adventure. You want to move to Riverside and start a church from scratch, and, and he came out here. This is about six years ago. I want you to hear how God has worked through pivotal circumstances he's faced um, in his life, just kind of walking through the stage of his life, coming out here to help plant the church. So, Alrighty, thanks, Ben. Yeah. Um, well, a, a little background information. Um, I committed my life to Christ in 2004. I was attending Church in the Valley in Diamond Bar, and uh, just really trying to sorry, just really trying to um, just learn to, to walk with God and what that looked like. Uh, I had made a few friendships there, and people were really coming alongside me, saying, "You know, we need to, you know, get you into the Word more and start memorizing verses." And so I was doing that, and. Um, couple years went by and a, a bunch of my friends there had talked about mission trips they'd gone on and at that time I was 24, 25, had a career. I said, well, I, I can't just go overseas for two, three months. You know, I, I just can't do that. But I really, God, I, I felt God tugging at my heart to, for something like that. So I just started praying, God, I really want to do a, a missions trip of some sort, but I don't know how. So, you know, I, I'm sure you can figure it out. So uh, probably about six months of, of prayer in, in that respect. And uh, one time, uh, DJ and I were actually riding motorcycles just down the street, and we'd stopped, and uh, he said, you know, Josh is thinking about planting a church out here. I said, really? That'd, that'd be great. And then, you know, it was like God just turned a light switch on, like, hey, that's, that's your answer to prayer. It's just like a missions trip, but, you know, you can kind of somewhat stay put. So um, signed up for that. You know, a couple months went by through the whole process and moved out here. That was probably my first large leap of faith. Uh, I was living living at home, and it meant moving out. She lived in Ontario, and to, to really be planted here, I needed to live locally. So I said, okay, well, i got to move out, and that, that means, you know, my, my bills are going to go up significantly. Um, there was nobody I could live with at the time. There's no other single guys uh, out here, so I had, to, I had to get my own apartment. Um, so I was weighing some of the, the options, but I, I really felt God calling me to do that. So um, took that leap of faith, sold some toys to help kind of free up some money. Toys mean cars. Yeah, cars. <laughs> and, cars maybe, and maybe a motorcycle or two. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried to get my priorities a, a little better. Uh, so but he did buy a truck, which helped us pull our original tra- our trailer. He doesn't have that truck anymore, but he did buy a truck for that. So. Yeah. Um, so moved out here. Um, and I was out here probably about six months or so when I had the opportunity to uh, change companies in my field, um, which also meant a little bit of increase in pay. I said, oh, great, you know, God's providing. This is, this is really going to help help make ends meet. So did that. Everything, you know, was going well. I was there probably six, eight months. Um, and uh, I think a couple people had, had already bought some houses. Uh, housing prices were coming down. I said, Great! I never thought I'd be able to own a home in Southern California, so I started looking. Uh, a couple months went by, prices finally got down to where I could afford them, and uh, you know, ended up buying a house. 
you've got a roommate, you know, all this is, this is great. Everything's going well. You know, God's really blessing this decision to, to come out here. Um, and that's about when uh, trouble started to strike. Uh, <clears throat> some new management came into our company, and they just started making little changes. Well, one of the things I, I learned was, you know, if, if it's your boss, you know, you, you really want to, to make it a joy for them to leave. So I complied. Okay, we're going to start doing paperwork this way. Okay, no problem. You know, it's different, but okay, no problem. Well, over time, they started changing the pricing and pay structure of things, which, you know, wasn't real happy about, but it was, you know, I'm sure they have a vision. Okay, let's go for it. Then it became more of a sales type. It, it, my pay from the beginning was commission-based, meaning I only got paid for the work that I did. Now, it, it seemed fair to me because if you work harder than the next guy, you should get paid more. So I, I was I was on board. Uh, but when they started really pushing, hey, you need to get your average amount of sales up. I said, well, I'm writing up or repairing everything that I see fit. And you know, they, we had months and months of this kind of friction. And you know, eventually, they, they basically came to me and said, well, you need to start finding repairs. And I, I saw the writing on the wall. It was basically meaning do whatever it takes to, you know, honest or dishonest to, uh, you know, you'll make a bigger paycheck and all that. But I, I just, I wasn't going to cross that boundary. Um, so, or, you know, after, after still not complying with their route, I uh, was just really not, I was not sleeping well um, just because the constant, uh, I guess you could say pressure from them to, to, to cross this line. And, you know, God just made it real clear one day, you know, it, it's time to leave. We don't want to be associated with these guys anymore. So uh, I ended up quitting. And at the time, a bunch of the guys were like, oh, you have another job lined up. You know, what else? This, is, this was now about 2008, 2009, which the economy was tanking. And, you know, people were lucky to have a job. And here I was quitting. Um, so it, 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 was, it was tough. Um, but some of the, the choices that I had to face were, well, on one hand, I, I need money to keep the house, pay the bills, tithe, and, and stay planted here in OCC. I was, I was really invested. Um, we were only a couple years old at that point, and I didn't want to just, you know, pack up and go home, which is probably what I'd have to do if I wasn't making any money. And, and you kind of see, as he's describing this, he's kind of saying, I planted my foot, you know. And I'm looking at my options. One of the options that they're trying to present was to go out of bounds, that you step out of bounds as far as fearing God, and that wasn't an option. So it's kind of like, all right, it's, you know, other option is to 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 leave the job and, and wait on God and see where. But again, keep his foot planted as far as his convictions, his commitment to what we were trying to do as far as starting the church out here. So, um, so yeah, th- th- those are the choices either cross the line or stay stay within God's boundary and, and wait and see what happens. So uh, I quit. Didn't have I had a little bit in savings, but not much. And so I quit and, you know, pray, prayed for the best. Um, <laughs> so uh, one, one of the things that was really amazing uh, that, that kind of stood out to me was the day that I came home from quitting, I actually felt relief. You know, a lot of people would think, you know, quite the opposite. I, I have no job, but I felt so relieved that I didn't have to constantly have my morals tested. So uh, the other thing was, you know, with uh, with all this, I was, I was really 
praying and, and in my quiet times trying to talk to God, see what he wanted me to do. And he, he made it clear, you know, I will provide for you. So, so that's why I, I took the step. Um, shortly after, I actually found out um, that I could file for unemployment even though I had quit. Um, so I called the unemployment office and, and talked to them about that, told them my exact situation. I didn't, you know, didn't lie and say they fired me or anything else. And I said, you know, if, if it's God's will, then he'll provide. And it was actually one of the rare cases they actually granted me unemployment. Um, they actually had to call the employer, verify everything that I had told them, and they said that that's true. Um, so I was given unemployment. So it was a little, little bit of help. Um, but it also was, you know, an answer, kind of a, a nudge along, God saying, yeah, don't worry, I got you, keep going. Um, so I was looking for work. A couple months later, I actually ended up finding a job um, being in insurance sales uh, for farmer's insurance. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the same field of work I was in, but it was some type of income. And, and you know, God just keeps telling me to push forward, and that was the next real thing that opened up. So I took that. I was there uh, – about six, eight months when my roommate's dad's friend, <laughs> it's kind of a stretch, uh, roommate's dad's friend owned a heating and air conditioning company out in Ukaipa, and he said he needed help, and, you know, I would rather do that than what I was doing in insurance, so I said, okay, um, you know, let's, let's go ahead and do that, and while it was a, a drop in pay from even years before, it was still, you know, I said, well, at least I'll get training. So I w went and did that, um, and while I was there, um, there was a, a, a couple things God was speaking to me about. Of you know, when I was looking, I was still still constantly looking for other air conditioning companies to work for, and I felt like at the time a lot of the companies were they they were very similar structure. Some guys that I knew that had worked for other companies, and so I said, well, there's no point in going there because you know it's all the same. He was significantly different, um, so it was a very small company, but, you know, it just worked. So I, I did that, but along that lines, I, I really felt God saying, you know, you can do better than what's out there. So uh, he led me to uh, open up our own business over time, and one of the blessings that I had from working with this guy was he owned the company, so I was really his right-hand man and asking all sorts of questions, like, you know, you've been in business 30, I think it's 30, 35 years. How did you do it? You know, his biggest thing was just honesty, um, which is the exact opposite of wh where I'd come from. So, um, so we had to to kind of recap everything. The the stress and the endurance was it, it was tough, um, but now I don't want to say I've made it through it uh, because at any point in time God could could just you know end end what we're doing. But I, I you know I feel the blessings now are so much. We're so worth going through the uh, pain and endurance. Uh, uh, how long was that? Yes. You ever seen that as a season? From the, the time the pressure started coming to cross the moral boundary to um, starting the own company and really being like, okay, this is God's providing consistently, mm -hmm. um, probably about three years. Okay. Thanks for sharing, man. Really seen varies. I want to invite our, our worship team to come up, and I've seen I've seen the process with Barry in that and in some different areas, and just waiting on God and seeing what God is going to do, and, and I've seen God 
develop steadfastness or endurance in him. And this is one of those areas that unless we allow the process of God shaping this, this quality in us of steadfastness, we don't grow. If we, if we, if we choose to not plant ourselves and, and wait on God, we, we, we always kind of just keep finding ourselves right back at the same tasks. And so uh, God develops these things in us. I wanted to give you this last um, sheet. You see it in your listening guide, but it's kind of a summary. Um, pull this out. It's called, just says catalyst, the five catalysts in my habits. God is consistently going to use all five of these areas that we've looked at in this series to grow us, whether it's practical teaching. There's some commitments in here that I want to just just quickly show you as far as how do I form the habits in these areas, practical teaching, attending OCC when I'm in town, asking God to speak to me through the teaching on Sundays, private disciplines. These messages are all online, but put this on your fridge or something. And just these are a reminder of the ways that God will grow me. Uh, private disciplines. I read my Bible. I pray on a regular basis. I give a regular offering in a God-honoring way at OCC. Personal ministry. I accept or I actively pray for and invite friends and others to OCC. I serve in the ministry at OCC where I'm needed. Providential relationships. I actively participate in a small group during the week. Um, also, I'd say, you know, I actively share my faith, get to know other people. And then pivotal circumstance today. I obey. I do the next right thing. What is my next step? These are areas to just keep in mind. In the course of your life, God's going to keep introducing these catalysts, these opportunities to interact with these things. And so I encourage you to respond. Uh, if you want to finish filling out that connection card in a moment, our ushers are going to be receiving the offering. And um, let's pray for our offerings as well. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to share and look at your word and just see the practical ways that, that your word intersects with our lives and the ways you challenge us, Lord, to grow. Help us, God, to be people who face trials with joy, all joy. Lord, may you produce steadfastness in us so that we would grow to be mature people who really know how to walk with you and walk in faith. Bless this offering, Lord, as we give back to you. I pray you just use this to, again, grow us, to stretch us, at the same time provide, God, uh, generously for the needs of the church and for the needs of the people who have yet to hear about you in this community who are trying to reach you. Lord, would you, would you continue to do that? In Jesus' name.